Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. We spend so much of our time in medicine communicating through research, standardized, peer-reviewed, and of course crucial, but medicine is full of compelling humanistic narratives. The great Marshall Gans once wrote in an article entitled Why Stories Matter that a story communicates fear, hope, and anxiety, and because we can feel it, We get the moral not just as a concept, but as a teaching of our hearts. That's the power of a story. So this week, we focus on narrative medicine, and we are joined by a master physician storyteller, Daniela Lamas, who just published her first book called You Can Stop Humming Now, A Doctor's Stories of Life, Death, and In Between. You can find links to a full bio of Dr. Lamas on our website. Just point your mouse to primarycare.hms.harvard.edu and click on ROS Podcast along the top. Also, we want to hear from you. To entice you to talk to us, we are going to give away a signed copy of Daniela's book to a randomly selected commenter or emailer or anyone who tweets at us in the next week. You can write to us at audrey at rospod.org or tweet us at rospodcast or leave a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash review systems. If you write to us, your name will go into the hat for a brand drawing. Thanks for listening. Daniela, welcome. Thank you. This podcast generally focuses on primary care, not exclusively, but I believe that you're the first intensivist we've had on the show as a guest, so welcome. And something I've been thinking about a lot in preparing for this interview was there's some, I think, interesting similarities between ICU medicine and primary care. Both fields look at patients as a whole rather than focusing on a single organ like the thyroid or nervous system. Both fields spend a lot of time attending the patient's family members um, who are, you know, really sometimes in the setting of chronic and acute illness, really part of the care team. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting comparison. Um, And in a way, I I do think the need to look at the entire patient and all the organ systems and to have meaningful interactions with family, these are similarities between primary care and intensive care and are really what brought me to intensive care is the desire not to just focus on one organ system. So I think we do need some of the same skills when it comes to communication with family members, um, with the specialists that we call in, sort of being the quarterback of a team. But there are significant differences, clearly, and I think one is that our job is to take care of what's immediate. You know, our gauges of success are either 30 or 60 or 90 day mortality or time on the ventilator or just leaving the ICU. And as such, we have kind of the luxury to ignore the things that don't seem immediate. Mm You know, you look at that and it's like, oh, well, that's a chronic problem. We can, uh, somebody else can deal <laughs> with that. And that somebody else, if the patient makes it out, might become you. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think relatedly, um, we don't have the longitudinal perspective that characterizes your work as a, as a PCP. I mean, we don't know who this patient was before. Often a question to a family member is, you know, what did they used to be like? Or so what were they like on Tuesday? Mm-hmm. And we have no idea generally, and this is something that this book delves into, but what they're going to be like afterwards. So we have this sort of intensive primary care experience um, for a couple days maybe, and then the patient leaves and then we're gone. Hmm. So a lot of your essays explore technology and medicine and how these technologies can extend life and what that really means. And in one of your essays called 10%, you talk about how there are some patients who can now live 
in this state of what is called chronic critical illness, uh, which you describe and you know what it's like for some of the patients you've cared for. Can you define chronic cri- critical illness? I'd never heard that before. Sure. So it's a kind of strange oxymoron of a yeah. term, I think, isn't it? Um, and that sort of oxymoronic uh, term definitely uh, is reflected in the actual definition. So, so these are patients who have survived an acute critical illness or a trauma, maybe a really bad pneumonia requiring intubation or a really bad accident of some sort, and they haven't died. They've made it through that acute illness, but they're not really better either. For the purposes of research, and there's a lot of different definitions of chronic critical illness, and Sort of the easiest is you know these patients when you see them, but for the purposes of research, often the definition that's used is tracheostomy tube mm-hmm. placement for prolonged mechanical ventilation. I so see. patients who are sick enough to need a vent got better enough so that they weren't about to die, and so it was deemed worthwhile to put in a tracheostomy, but they didn't get better enough to actually get off the ventilator. And estimates are that there's at least 100,000 such patients in wow. the U.S. at any one time. Huh. So can you explain where, uh, you explain in the essay where the title comes from, 10%. Um, Can you explain for listeners who haven't read the essay and, you know, how did it apply to the two gentlemen? You kind of followed two gentlemen in the essay and and how did it apply to them? Sure. So 10% was referring to the sort of prognostication for patients who are chronically critically ill. And it's not something that we generally talk about, or at least in my experience, that I kind of find the right way to talk about with patients or their families. But one year after the acute event, whether it's a critical illness or a trauma, about half of these patients will have died, and only 10% will be alive and independent at home. Hmm. The remaining uh, about 40% of patients will either be in a nursing facility or at home, but dependent on caretakers to help them with their daily tasks. And so in in this chapter, I follow two men, uh, one whose name is Charlie and one who I refer to as Mr. O'Brien. And both of these patients were chronically critically ill. Both of these men had tracheostomy tubes placed because they weren't able to get off the ventilator. Both of them passed from the ICU to long-term ventilator facilities. But one made it home. And incidentally, I actually just saw him last night Mm. at an event he had at his home. And one did not. One died back in the ICU. And I sort of mapped both of their courses um, and kind of talked about through that, you know, how hard it is to make these decisions in the setting of what seems to be uncertainty, but there's a moment when it becomes more clear who's going to go which way. um, And often that's just hard to communicate. Hmm. So for PCPs, PCPs out there listening who may have patients come back to them after prolonged illness and a patient making it home like I I think it was Mr. O'Brien was the gentleman who survived. Charlie, so, but either Charlie. way, yes. Sorry, I can't remember. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, so what would you want the PCPs to know? Yeah. I think, I think I'd want PCPs to know, to understand this overall prognosis. Um, you know, we're, we're good at knowing that certain cancers, say, bring with them, uh, unlikely, it's unlikely that people will be okay. Um, and if somebody gets sick enough to become chronically critically ill, it's a very heterogeneous population, but the best case scenario involves a really long and arduous recovery mm. that some people might not choose if they were to choose, so if they were to really understand what the possibilities were. And some people might, but I think it's our job not to push them one way or the other, really. I'm, 
not against people playing long odds at all, but I do think it's important to be able to offer the education of what the medical realities are and what they might be likely to experience um, ahead to help them make these decisions. Sure. So you, you wrote this book of beautiful essays, but you also write for the New York Times and the New Yorker. And in 2014, you published an essay in the New Yorker about ECMO, which is this technology that can reoxygenate blood if someone's lungs aren't functioning. And you also, there's an essay about um, a woman who has IPF and um, goes on ECMO for a period in, in the book. So you describe how, at least at that time, there really wasn't strict regulation or guidelines around the use of technology, and there were times when leaders in the field who were really experts in ECMO might get a call from a team at another hospital saying, you know, we started this patient on the ECMO, we don't know what to do next. And I was really struck by the comments of one of the doctors that you quoted in the article. She said, when the lines between life and death are blurred, and when it becomes clear that a patient might not be able to recover a meaningful level of function, we have to ask hard questions about, how much is too much and how long is too long. So I was wondering if you could talk about in the intervening years if, you know, I'm sure ECMO technology has progressed even more and I was wondering are there, are there regulations or kind of guardrails in place now? And So those are all great questions and I think ECMO is really fascinating. Um, and one reason is I think because of how like, human the decision making is around it. And just to answer the last question first in terms of regulations, the state is to my knowledge, the same as it was when I wrote that initial article, which is to say that it is a technology that anyone can use. Um, reasonably, one needs to have a surgeon or somebody who is uh, able to put in the catheters that allow the blood to be drawn out of the body, to be drawn through the ECMO machine to replace the lungs. Um, but in terms of uh, in what cases ECMO is applied, there aren't regulations that say this kind of case is a case for ECMO or this isn't either. There are general standards, but there aren't regulations. Mm. Um, and there is a move toward uh, toward sort of uh, localizing ECMO in centers of excellence. Um, you know, if you do something over and over again, you become better at it. But similar to transplant, where there's a transplant program at the Brigham and there's a transplant program at MGH, yeah. um, ECMO <laughs> exists sort of in a similar way, yeah. where uh, many different centers, even if they're all in the same area, do it. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about ECMO, though, which you brought up in your question, um, is what happens when we reach the limits of that technology and sort of what happens. And just to flush that out a little, so ECMO is an organ replacement technology. And in a way, it's like dialysis for the kidneys or like a ventricular assist device for the heart, partial artificial heart. But it's different too because both those technologies uh, can go on indefinitely um, and allow a person to live the hospital and leave the hospital and sort of return to their lives. But ECMO is distinct because that can only happen in the hospital and can only happen in the ICU. And why is that? Essentially because the technology is good, but still, and there are people who are working on artificial lungs that people can leave the hospital with, but that doesn't exist yet. And so the technology is good, but it needs specially trained respiratory therapists to be at the bedside, to attend to the clangs and chatters of the machine. Um, and patients assume a risk of a devastating bleed of, of death, clearly. 
and so you can't leave the hospital. So what does that mean when there's a machine that can replace an organ, but you can't leave the hospital with it? It means that the assumption really is that this isn't going to be the way you're going to live until the end of your life. And so ECMO is started in one of two circumstances. And one is if the expectation is that the lungs will recover. Say somebody has flu and has terrible respiratory failure in the setting of flu. And maybe the ventilator itself is having to push in so much air at a pressure that's doing damage to the lungs. And in that setting, ECMO can take off some of that work with the hope that the lungs recover. The other choice where it's used, and it's used at the Brigham, um, free, not infrequently for this, is somebody who's waiting for a transplant. And they're a candidate. There's a decent chance that they could get a transplant. But they're so sick, and the transplant is not coming imminently, that there's a chance that they'll die while waiting. And in those cases, sometimes the surgeons and the transplant team decide to put someone on ECMO, as a patient in my book experienced, as what's called a bridge to transplant. So the goal is transplant, but you're gonna die before you get there without this technology. And these are the cases that are really hard because what if something happens where transplant's no longer a possibility? And then you have somebody on this machine that was supposed to get them somewhere, but that bridge is, the, the island where you were getting to is gone now. And, and these are the cases where we come up against these sort of really uh, difficult, impossible moral decisions of how long do we wait for? And, um, and if we know that transplant isn't going to be a possibility, the general understanding in the field is that at that point you say, well, ECMO is no longer serving a purpose and we need to find a humane way to stop it. Yeah. Um, and that the best way to do that and sort of how to lay out that possibility up front so that people can actually hear it is something that we're still struggling with. Yeah. I, yeah. It must be such a hard conversation to try to have with a distraught family. I'm yeah. And I've never been, I've actually uh, talked to people sort of before and afterwards. I've never been in the room in one of these conversations. The people who lead these are generally the uh, sort of surgeons who manage the ECMO and generally the transplant team. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think there's definitely moves toward thinking, you know, should everybody who started on ECMO in this way have a palliative care consult, say, just to set out the goals and expectations up front and help follow the family? And that's not currently standard, but I think it would be appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. In your essay, uh, Nightmares After the ICU, you write about this uh, syndrome, post-intensive care syndrome, and how you now have a clinic for post-ICU patients, and part of the care that you provide there is to screen them for this syndrome. Tell us a little bit about this aspect of your clinical work. Definitely. So I first learned about post-intensive care syndrome while I was in fellowship. It wasn't something I was aware of when I was a resident, despite, I'm sure, sending many patients out of the ICU to, uh, to, to struggle with these issues. Um, and learned about it, not even as a doctor, but as a reporter. Um, and I had been reading some story of this woman who uh, left the ICU, went home, was suffering these nightmares, and ultimately um, came to understand that what she experienced was not unusual, that some one in two patients uh, who leave the ICU will have some aspect of post-intensive care syndrome, which is defined as a new issue in psychiatric functioning, so generally anxiety, depression, or post-traumatic stress, uh, problems with their thinking, sort of cognitive impairment that is actually, you know, even if somebody was young and regular to begin with, along the lines of what somebody might see with mild Alzheimer's or traumatic brain injury or physical issues. And that's sort of the most obvious because we can see it. 
And this applies not to patients who pass through the ICU for you know, a minute because they're in diabetic ketoacidosis and somebody really needs to put them on an insulin drip for six hours and it's not allowed on the floor. <laughs> uh, these are generally patients who are sick enough to require um, intubation and to require a breathing tube for about 48 hours or more. That's a lot of patients, um, millions of patients in fact. And they're given that the ICU and ICU medicine, as we were talking about in the first question, really traditionally doesn't have a longitudinal component, there isn't really a way to follow these patients up um, and to address not just screening them for anxiety, depression, PTSD, but also going through what happened in their ICU stays, sort of filling in some of these blanks in the memory that exist and that really are often troublesome for these people. Um, doing medication reconciliation and trying to better understand like why they're still on some of the meds that were started in the ICU and that they can come off and things like this. And so throughout the country and really throughout the world, um, in the UK this has been around for longer, um, we've been starting this post-intensive care clinic it's called the ICU Recovery Clinic. And our goal is not to uh, be longitudinal care, but instead um, to see patients one or maybe two times after an ICU stay, essentially to uh, tie up the loose ends and to help screen them for some of these issues and offer them appropriate referrals and offer them education. And initially, surprisingly for me, but maybe unsurprisingly if people think about it, it's actually been hard to get patients to come to this clinic, uh, mm. particularly from the Brigham Intensive Care Unit where people are really sick and yeah. they have a lot of other issues, often yeah. you know, bad cancers. Um, and so our hope is to sort of broaden our scope of patients we're looking at so that we can get uh, people who I think we can help because everybody who's come has said that it is helpful just to talk about what happened to get these screenings and maybe for us to say you're doing great but they find mm -hmm. that helpful too. So one of the women you write about in, in, in your book um, in this story, um, Nancy Andrews, her PCP recognized some of the symptoms of PTSD after her ICU stay and appropriately referred her for follow-up care. It's a nice shout out. Um, <laughs> So what, what, what should PCPs know about post-ICU syndromes? Yeah. So Nancy entirely credits her PCP, and she was, she was miserable at home, and she was going back to see her surgeon regularly. Uh, she was a patient at the Brigham after she has Marfan syndrome, had, had an aortic dissection, and so a near-fatal event, and she was lucky to be alive, and every time she went back after her surgery and very long recovery, her surgeons told her how lucky she was to be alive, and she did, in fact, feel lucky, but she also didn't feel the same. She was, like, in her 40s. She's an artist. She went, tried to go back to work. Her mind was murky, but what bothered her most was uh, post-traumatic stress, and What's interesting about post-ICU PTSD is that often the flashbacks that people describe are to things that didn't objectively happen. I mean, they hmm. didn't happen. There are generally flashbacks to these delirious hallucinations that people had huh. when they were sedated. So they're horrifying. So people have these flashbacks and nightmares, uh, often of these paranoid events of the nurses were trying to kill them. Uh, they saw body parts. Uh, Nancy Andrews would remember bugs crawling on the wall and like blood coming down the wall. Uh, she imagined that part of her brain had been cut away. Oh and these were, these were the images that returned to her at home. So needless to say, she thought she was nuts. And that was uh, very upsetting to her. What had happened to her mind? 
Um, and her, her primary care doctor had uh, been, uh, he was a vet or he was involved in, in something where he, he knew a lot more about PTSD and sort of this hyper arousal that she described, these flashbacks, they, they made him think of PTSD and he said, hey, you know, what you experienced is a trauma. Um, it seems like you have post-traumatic stress and sent her to a therapist who followed her for years and she really credits that exchange and that referral with uh, allowing her to get back on a path to actually enjoy the life that she had. Um, and so I would say, you know, I think in the, in the, were there a limitless time, it would be fantastic if all PCPs could screen all ICU patients for all these <laughs> issues. Um, but I think what's more reasonable is to, to know that this is a thing, um, to know that somebody who looks okay, uh, quote unquote, after an ICU stay um, might not be fully, um, maybe to ask some targeted questions. Um, and to know that these clinics is, uh, you know, if you're in Boston, um, we'll see patients uh, who've been in ICUs, not just in the Brigham, um, and uh, we'll be able to do some more extensive time, you know, time intensive uh, screening and education about the ICU stay. Uh, so I think just making, making this a norm of things that uh, you think about and, and maybe even having the, you know, we're, we're open to seeing patients. Um, so having that kind of reflex of, uh, maybe this is somebody who could be referred to the post-ICU clinic would be great. So I think we'll move on. And to close, if you could please read your essay that you published in the New York Times in 2010 called Friend Request. Last winter, in the middle of my intern year, I became Facebook friends with a young man who was dying in the intensive care unit. An investment banker in his mid-20s, he thought he was healthy until a fluttering in his chest and swollen ankles took him to a doctor. Now he was in the ICU with a rare cardiac condition and the vague possibility of a transplant. And his laptop. That's the first thing I noticed the morning a group of us stood outside his door on rounds. He was shocked by his internal defibrillator three times the night before, died that is, three times before being brought back with jolts of electricity and this young man with a steroid swollen face was surfing the internet. In medical school, when we cut open a cadaver and lifted the heart from its silent cage, it was beautiful and unreal. With this patient, it was clear to me that there would be no poetry. He was dying and it would be ugly and I knew I couldn't help him. He terrified me. Eventually, I was sent in to pull a central line out of his neck. Hey, I said. I told him I was just going to cut out the stitches and then pull out the line, basically a large IV for giving drugs, from the vein deep inside. It would bleed, and I'd apply pressure for a while. When I pulled, I told him, I wanted him to hum. Hum, he said. He sounded like a regular guy, and I thought suddenly of fantasy football and beer. Uh, well, we don't want an air bubble, I said while I cut the sutures. Humming increases the pressure in your chest and keeps air from wanting to go in. I braced one hand against his shoulder and yanked the line out from his neck. Hmm. His throat cracked and I sensed he had a bad singing voice. I jammed the gauze down, but still blood dripped onto his gown, spreading out into the fabric. I leaned my weight into his neck and felt him flinch. He turned his head toward the window, toward the snow. It's like Siberia out there, I said. It turned out he actually went there a few years before with friends. They took the Trans-Siberian Railway. That is so cool, I said. Are you on Facebook? He asked me. I'll friend you, and you can see the pictures. The last time a guy asked me that, I was in a crowded bar, giggling with the promise of meeting someone new. 
Now I was in the ICU. With every breath he took, I was scared the monitors would go off and he would die, and I wouldn't know what to do. That night, I went online and found the friend request. I clicked on his name. There he was, I thought, though not with swollen cheeks and belly, wasted arms and legs. This boy on Facebook was, well, hot. He was single, and he liked Radiohead and Tom Clancy. He'd been sending upbeat status updates from the ICU. To read them, you'd never know he was so sick, but to me there were missives from a dying man. My rotation in the ICU ended soon after this, and I didn't see him. But when I couldn't sleep, sometimes I found myself opening his Facebook page, reading those status reports, glancing at his photos. Meanwhile, I learned that his kidneys were no longer working, that he kept spiking fevers, that he hadn't received a transplant. And then, a few weeks later, I received a message from him in my online inbox. Can I stop humming yet? I wish I could say that I responded, but instead I hesitated and then signed off. I still don't know why. I didn't think there was an ethical principle about following a patient on Facebook, and I didn't worry that he'd see a picture of me in a bikini on my page. Maybe it was just that it had been weeks since that day I held pressure to his wound while he hummed and I just couldn't believe he remembered. After that, I wanted to go in and see how he was doing, but I didn't. I also stopped looking at his Facebook page, worried that he would somehow sense my online footprints. Months passed. One evening, I signed on to find his page filled with messages of condolence. They stretched for pages, and I read each one. Later, I signed on to our medical record system and followed the notes that led inevitably now, to his death. At the very end, I learned his family said enough. Since then in my job, I've had to learn to look at death in all of its horrible manifestations and not take pause. But I still find myself wishing for another chance to reply to that casual online message, to say, hey, what's up? I'm sorry it took me so long to get back to you. You're okay to stop humming now. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Review of Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Please check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, for more information about our guest. Just click on ROS Podcast at the top. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps others find the show. And as I said, we're going to give away a signed copy of You Can Stop Humming Now to a randomly selected commenter on social media or anyone who emails us. You can write to us at audrey at rospod.org or tweet us at rospodcast or leave a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash reviewassistance. Thanks for listening and looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you.